Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 51, The Fowler Presence. This week's book recommendation, given that we're now launching the career of Bad King John, is King John by W.L. Warren. Warren was one of those historians who sought to some degree to rehabilitate John. He doesn't try and whitewash it, but he points out the good stuff he did and the mitigations for some of the bad stuff. Anything you want to know about John is in there without the book being overlong. So, this week we have to explain why Richard found war to be something of a pain in the neck and imagine that we're cooks from Chalou and kill Richard the Lionheart so that we can spend more time with his family in the form of Brother John. There are a number of versions of Richard's death and I did a very quick rough survey to see which one was the most popular version. Everyone agrees that he died at a place called Chalou Chabol, near Limoges in Aquitaine. And everyone agrees that the castle wasn't worth the rough end of a pineapple. But people disagree why Richard should have been there in the first place. The one that heads the list in my most unscientific of surveys is the one where a treasure trove was discovered at the place and Richard was arrogantly determined to get his hands on it. So he arrived at the fateful castle of Chalou because the local lord had refused to hand it all over and Richard was having none of it in that kind of high-handed, noblesse oblige way that he was most certainly capable of. It's worth noting that there are plenty of academic historians, Warren for example, who say exactly the same thing. Well, instead of that, here's the story that seems to make most sense to me. Mainly because the two historians I spent most of my time following, Gillingham and Frank Barlow, happily agree on it. We have to start with the context. We left Richard contemplating a full peace agreement to follow on from the truce already agreed. Negotiations had started and had now hit the obstacle of Richard's reluctance to leave any part of the Norman Vexin in Philip's hands. But a deal was now in sight. The idea was that Philip's son Louis would marry Richard's niece and Richard would give them Gisors as part of the dower. And at the same time in Germany, although Richard's cousin Otto had been appointed Holy Roman Emperor, he was now being challenged by a bloke called Philip of Swabia, who was supported by Philip. So, as part of the deal, Philip would swap his allegiance from Philip of Swabia to Otto, thus helping Richard's candidate. While these details were being sorted out, Philip was though still able to cause trouble. And trouble he did cause. He accused John of plotting behind Richard's back, which is of course an eminently believable claim, but Richard believed John's protestations of innocence in this case, and it has to be said that actually John does seem to have been pretty well behaved since 1194. Meanwhile, Richard saw the opportunity to deal with a couple of vassals who had caused him continual trouble, including, for example, dealing with his enemy during a time of war. 
the two gents concerned were the Count of Angoulême and the Viscount of Limousin. In the words of one chronicler, Richard devastated the Viscount's lands with fire and sword. Richard had attacked other castles, therefore, before he came to the little castle of Chaloux, and clearly intended to attack more. From here on in, there are a few arguments about some of the details, but nothing major. He arrived in front of a small castle that had just two knights and 38 other people in it. For three days he pressed the attack hard, Richard's crossbowmen making the defenders keep their heads down, while the sappers worked hard to undermine the walls. By the 26th of March, they were clearly close to surrender, so after supper, Richard decided to have a look at what was going on, take a few shots with his crossbow, as he often did. He wasn't wearing the full kit, after all, he wasn't planning to go into battle, and anyway, he had a rectangular shield carried before him to cope with any shots from the defenders. And in point of fact, there was just one bloke up there on the walls, who turns out to be probably called Peter Basil, using a frying pan as a shield. As Richard looked, the man fired a shot in his direction, and Richard couldn't help applauding the shot before ducking. Unfortunately, the applauding meant that he got to duck a bit late, and the bolt hit him between shoulder and neck. Now that's just a great bit of detail, isn't it? I mean, here is a guy who sees war as the equivalent of tennis. A guy doing a bit of showboating, just because he can, because he's Richard, Coeur de Lyon. Anyway, Richard had been wounded before, and he wasn't unduly worried. And in fact, he said nothing and made his way back to his tent. Impatiently, he then tried to pull the bolt out himself, and only succeeded in breaking off the wood. And again, this is all quite impressive, isn't it? At this point, I'd be crying like a baby, begging for mercy, asking for my mother, and would have absolutely no truck with the concept of pulling a crossbow bolt out of my neck. But there you are. Maybe that's why I'm not King of England. Or maybe there are other reasons. Anyway, onward. The surgeon then arrived, described by the chronicler as a butcher, and he dug around in the king's shoulder and made an awful mess before the head of the bolt was finally extracted. Probably inevitably then, it was not long before the wound had turned gangrenous, and Richard had seen enough wounds to know what the next stage in this process was. He wrote to Eleanor, his mum, who came over post-haste. The castle by this time had fallen, and Richard had the guy who'd shot the bolt come into his tent and forgave him. I think a rather nice footnote to this story, if nice is the appropriate word, is that Mercadier later found the guy and had him flayed alive, as well as hanging all the defenders. So much for Christian forgiveness then. On the 6th of April 1199 then, Richard finally died. His brain and entrails were buried in an abbey at Charoux, relatively close by. His heart went to Rouen, and the rest of him went to Fontevraud, where it was buried at his father's feet on the 11th of April. Buried at his father's feet so that he could ask for his father's forgiveness as quickly as possible on the other side. By the way, if you're ever in France, hanging around in the Loire Valley, Fontevraud is a place you've just got to go to. It's not necessarily the most beautiful or physically impressive place, it's jolly nice, but to walk in and see the effigies of Henry, Eleanor, Richard and, incidentally, Isabella of Angoulême, he's a real stunner. And in a funny kind of way, even more impressive than going to Westminster Abbey and so on. Richard's sister Joan died very soon after him and is also buried there. Now you'll remember Joan because she's the one that Richard had tried to marry off to Saladin's sister. So I suppose the question is, is all that treasure stuff true or not? There are contemporary accounts that no such thing occurs and the alternative explanation sounds so much more likely to me. 
though I have to confess that Richard is clearly quite capable of attacking and destroying a castle without any excuse whatsoever, so it's not possible to totally discount the story. But why make such a thing up? John Gilliam's theory is that it's a religious parable, the folly of greed and arrogance on behalf of the chroniclers. But the greatness of the man who is then able to recognise his folly and forgive his killer. Well, there you go. It's for you to decide. So that is finally it. Richard is dead. It's been eight episodes since Richard came to the throne. I hope he is duly impressed. So what do we think of him then? After all these episodes, do you think he's a hero, a wonder of the chivalric ideal, or an arrogant, brutal, high-handed SOB who cared only about war? Well, if you're split, that would figure. When Richard died so unexpectedly, the world was shocked. In the words of one chronicler, Bernard Etier, King Richard, known as Coeur de Lyon, died and was buried with his father in the Abbey of Fontefort, to the joy of many and the sorrow of others. Richard was a controversial figure in his time, and I suspect he wouldn't have it any other way. I also suspect that if I met him with my 21st century attitudes, I would dislike him intensely. There is nothing egalitarian about this man. He was supremely a product of the feudal system. There are no perfect heroes in the world, really, are there anyway? He said slightly miserably. But there'll always be something a bit special about Richard Coeur de Lyon. There is nothing half-arsed about this bloke. He had as an opponent one of the cleverest, most ruthless and unscrupulous leaders in French history in Philip Augustus. And that's saying something. But while Richard was around, he never looked like losing the struggle. The completeness of John's defeat is a sign in a way of Richard's great talent. Having said all that and got starry-eyed and all... It's worth noting that Richard was more than a bit careless about some of his royal responsibilities. He has no heir. Henry I tied himself in knots over that problem. Henry VIII killed one wife and dumped another one because of it. There's no evidence Richard even gave it a second thought. And given that he didn't have any sprogs, he could at least have nominated somebody. You'll remember that he had nominated Arthur of Brittany while at Messina with Philip, but that decision had been overturned when William Longchamp had been removed and Richard never clarified anything afterwards. And so we arrive at John. Bad King John. Evil King John. So the challenge here, of course, is to try to look at John square on and not assume he's such a terrible guy that really he's just been misunderstood. After all, there has been a period of rehabilitation of John by historians, though truth to say that's gone backwards a bit over the last few years. Now, I've had a few comments from people that they liked the historiography bit about Richard, and someone else mentioned they'd be keen to know more about the chroniclers themselves. So here we go. So I, of course, started by referring back to my key reference books, The Children's Ladybird, Kings and Queens of England, and 1066 and all that. The judgment of Ladybird was that John was not a good king for England. So that's clear enough then. Still, they said the same about Richard. 1066 and all that is a bit more forthcoming. When John came to the throne, he lost his temper and flung himself on the floor, foaming at the mouth and biting the rushes. He was thus a bad king. Indeed, he had begun badly as a bad prince, having attempted to answer the Irish question by pulling the beards of the aged Irish chiefs, which was a bad thing and the wrong answer but I guess I'd not improve my already shaky reputation by relying on these as serious historical sources. So let's have a look at what other things we've got. We have been blessed through Henry II and Richard 
with a relatively large number of sources, but they rather come to an end before John really gets going. Ralph of Disto ends in 1199. Roger of Hoveden, who's been around now for so long I can't conceive of not being able to refer to him, will end in 1201. Gerald of Wales lived until 1216, but he concentrated his work on earlier years. We get some coverage from Gervais of Canterbury. Gervais was a monk at the Cathedral Monastery of Canterbury. The monastery is his main concern, but he got a lot of information from travellers given his location. He was modest and reticent about handing out the gossip and criticising the Angevins, and is a good recorder of facts. And then there's Ralph, abbot of the Cistercian Abbey of Cogshaw. Once again, it's his own world that interests him most, Essex and the Cistercians. But again, he often gets knowledge and information from travellers. Then there were two chroniclers who weren't contemporaries. There's Roger of Wendover and an anonymous canon of a priory in Cambridgeshire. The anonymous chronicler wrote his materials in the late 1220s because he was disappointed with the quality of the manuscripts in his priory. So he got his mates to remember as much as they could about the events and wrote it all down. The chronicle's a bit weak for the earlier years, but is much fuller for later years, and the chronicler is a careful and balanced observer of the facts. Basically, he's reasonably positive about John. He acknowledges that he's a great prince, recognises that he makes mistakes, but doesn't hand out hysterical judgments about him being an evil man. Unlike the other guy, Roger of Wendover, a monk of St Albans who wrote Flowers of History. Roger is a deeply prejudiced author, whose chronicle is nonetheless a compelling read, improved later by a very famous and talented writer, Matthew Paris. Roger's purpose in writing is to warn people against evil by giving them good examples of evil men, such as, in Roger's view, John. So Roger's chronicle needs to be taken with a huge vat of salt. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So how has history viewed John? Well, Wendover and Paris heavily influenced the thinking of the time and later opinions. Here's Roger and Matthew Paris's description of John. John was a tyrant, not a king, a destroyer instead of a governor, crushing his own people and favouring aliens, a lion to his subjects, but a lamb to foreigners and rebels. He had lost the Duchy of Normandy and many other territories through sloth, and was actually keen to lose his kingdom of England or ruin it. He was an insatiable extorter of money. He invaded and destroyed his subjects' property. He had bred no worthy children, but only such as took after their father. He detested his wife, and she him. He himself was envious of many of his barons and kingsfolk, and seduced their more attractive daughters and sisters. As for Christianity, he was unstable and unfaithful. Now when you look at this, you can't help but recognise how absurd it is. This is just a long list of everything you could possibly think of to throw at the guy. But by and large, there's something of a truth in it. John wasn't popular with his contemporary chroniclers and subjects, who were at best neutral 
and at worst vitriolic. The chronicler's record is pretty much bound to be a bit nasty. After all, to be a good king in the eyes of the monks who wrote the chronicles, you need to support the church and its property, do exactly what the Pope said, and lead a blamelessly moral existence, with no fun or messing about with members of the opposite sex, or, God forbid, the wrong kind of messing about with members of the same sex. John struck out on many of these criteria. So it's Roger and Matthew's vitriolic view that dominates the scene until the Tudors come along. Now then, John squabbled with the Pope and his attempt to run England independent of the Pope's authority very much chimed with the Tudors, who were, of course, at the time facing the prospect of several hundred warships crammed full of Catholic warriors out for their blood. So the view of John was suddenly rather positive. They liked the idea of a Pope-hater. But then comes along the Civil War, and suddenly it's the Magna Carta, and independence from royal rule that's the big news. Nothing to do with the Pope at all. So it's back over to the John-hating side of the boat, and prays for those decent, egalitarian barons. But of course, when Charles II was restored to the throne, John's stock rose again. After all, after the failed experiment with republicanism, it took a brave man to big up independence from royal powers. But then a couple of centuries later, we get the Victorians, a bunch never short of a point of view. In this case, there was something of a split between the Whigs and the Revisionists. The Whiggish view might be briefly summarised up in the words of J.R. Green, who wrote that Hell is spoiled by the fouler presence of King John, which I think leaves relatively little room for misunderstanding and debate. So, for the Whigs, Magna Carta took centre stage as a crucial milepost on the relentless march towards parliamentary democracy. They saw John as a failure against their modern standards of military success in empire building, and a man who broke the Victorians' religious and moral code, and a strong sense of family. On the other hand, the revisionists focused on the development of central government, which was of course a central theme of the Victorian era, just as much as the development of a more democratic franchise. So for them, John was a modern force of centralisation, and the barons were a bunch of old buffties trying to hold back progress. You pays your money and takes your choice. Now I reckon the Whigs probably came out with more votes on that argument, given the generally accepted view of John as a bad thing. But in the 20th century, especially the 50s and 60s, historians like Warren, Sidney Painter, Galbraith, Holt, Poole and Turner had another hack at it. So while we stress that the chronicler's record for John is a lot more patchy than it is for Henry and Richard, that's not true of administrative documents. In fact, John's reign is where the mass of documentation really takes off big time. It's possible, for example, to map where he is day by day through his reign. So these historians focused on the unreliability of chroniclers such as Wendover and held that they'd created a misleading, publicly accepted view of John. And that, in fact, John was highly efficient in the development of central government. Furthermore, they took the view that John faced insuperable problems in holding on to the Angevin Empire, created for him by Henry and Richard, and that the poor lad simply suffered a run of bad luck. So Galbraith dismissed the Wendover and Paris portrait of John as a creation of literature, as fictitious as Shakespeare's Falstaff. Turner pointed out that he'd started the construction of a navy. Poole 
highlighted his policy towards the Welsh, Scots and Irish, and Holt summed up the whole thing with, It is now recognised that John took a thoroughly intelligent and immensely energetic interest in the running of the country. The total achievement was enormous, fit to stand with that of Henry II or Edward I. Together these two and John represent a standard which was never again equalled in the medieval period. But now the pendulum has rather swung back again, with historians such as Gilliam. Their arguments is that it's all very well saying that all the chroniclers are biased, but isn't it significant that there are no chroniclers saying anything actively in praise of the guy? Everyone either hates him or tries to excuse him. Most people agree that John faces a superb opponent in Philip Augustus, but compare the outcomes of John's reign to the outcomes of Richard's reign. And everyone agrees that John is deserted by his barons. Some put the blame on the greedy and selfish barons, some put the blame on John for failing to control his barons, and some sit on the fence and deal with the splinters. But everyone agrees that his reign is worth studying and is central to English history. So let's leave the last word on this to Winnie, since he sums it up rather nicely. The British nation and the English-speaking world owe far more to the vices of John than to the labours of virtuous sovereigns. For it was through the union of many forces against him that Magna Carta, the most famous milestone in our rights and freedom, was set up. So there's my Winnie impression. So, on that classy note, enough of the historiography, let's get on with the action. Richard is at very least culpable in the lack of clarity about his wishes for the succession. Although, as we've seen with Henry I, that alone wouldn't have guaranteed a painless succession. The law also isn't clear. Here we have the competing claims of Arthur and John. The first, Arthur, is the son of an elder brother, i.e. Geoffrey of Brittany. The second, John, is the younger son of the original king, and therefore an earlier generation. In England, the law book by the Justicia Glanville argues the case for both sides and probably favours the nephew, or Arthur. The legalists of Normandy, however, clearly favoured John's case. The long and short of this is that possession would prove to be nine-tenths of the law here and that the support of the barons would be absolutely crucial. So here's a conversation between the two most influential men of the Angevin kingdom, William the Marshal and Hubert Walter, Archbishop of Canterbury according to the life of William the Marshal, which it must be pointed out is written after 1226, when all the outcomes of John's reign were clear, and therefore has the benefit of 2020 hindsight. In this little scenario, I've been joined by my son Henry. Hello. Henry is going to be playing the part of Hubert, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I'm going to be playing the part of William Marshal. So, here we go then. My Lord... We must lose no time in choosing someone to be king. I think as Arthur should rightfully be king. To my mind that would be bad. Arthur is counselled by traitors. He is haughty and proud. If we put him over us, he will only do harm, for he does not love the people of this land. He shall not come here by my advice. Consider rather Count John. He seems to me to be the nearest heir to the land which belonged to his father and brother. Marshal, is this really your desire? Yea, my lord, for it is just. Undoubtedly a son has a better claim than a grandson. It is right that he should have it. So be it then, but mark my words, Marshal. 
You will never regret anything in your life as much as this. It's quite an interesting exchange, not just for the discussion of feudal law, which I suspect many of you wouldn't say keeps you awake at night, but also because the author of the life, while clearly a fan of William, and yet puts him making a decision which will lead to the loss of an empire and the murder of Arthur. I guess the point was that William was a model of honour and feudal propriety. The view of Arthur is also interesting, isn't it? It seems a little harsh given that we're talking about a lad of 12 here, but it's reasonably clear that his mother Constance was not an Angevin fan either. Now, I am aware that my utterances in past episodes about John have not been positive, and I'd claim that John's record up to now has been far from impressive. His absurd and intemperate performance in Ireland, his treachery to his brother, the military failure of revolt, his craven and desperate negotiation with Philip, even his desertion of Philip. Now, maybe the motivation for some of his actions lay in the less-than-perfect family atmosphere he was brought up in. As the youngest son, full of brothers competing for power and attention, he was, unfortunately, the runt of the litter. And it just can't have been great to have an elder brother clearly idolised by your mother and called the Great One. But, unfortunately, even after he climbed the greasy pole, he couldn't shake off that sense of insecurity. John had plenty of talents, and many of them very much valued by the age he lived in. For example, he was every bit the king in his crown wearings, his love of jewellery and finery in an age that saw this as the way that a king should be. He was generous, open-handed to his wife and ex-wife, liberal to churches, prodigal to the poor. Like his dad, he also had a love of the details of governance and administration, and had a talent for employing excellent administrators, who oddly enough were consistently loyal to him. Men like William of Rotham, Reginald of Cornhill, Hubert de Burr and Peter de Roche. His failings were without doubt nothing like the scale that Roger of Wendover and Matthew Paris would have us believe. But there is enough truth in them to explain the disastrous arc of his reign. He was mercurial and impetuous and worse, he was unlucky. Far too frequently he goes for the big play and loses. And then follows these periods of manic activity with inexplicable periods of sloth. But the biggie, the absolute killer, was his complete inability to establish a relationship with his barons. In a feudal age, where personal relationships counted for all, this was something of a drawback. John mistrusted all except for his personal employees and mercenaries. And in return, he earned mistrust in spades. But in 1199, all of that was in the future. Because actually, John did rather well. He acted decisively in a situation that could so easily have got out of hand. Within three days of Richard's death, John had taken possession of the main Angevin castle and treasury in Greater Anjou at Chinon, and went through the formal ritual of an election. But despite this, Anjou, Men and Touraine were not friendly. Their barons declared for Arthur on the 18th of April, and John had to move sharply to get away to Normandy. Normandy, though, appeared to have no doubts and on the 25th of April he was invested with the ducal crown, while William the Marshal was over in England persuading them of John's case. For the English barons, this was something of a Morton's fork. A what fork? You learn something new every day in the podcasting world. I was about to say that the English barons had a Hobson's choice when a small voice told me to look it up, and I was told in no uncertain terms that a Hobson's choice is where you have only one choice. 
And the expression I needed was a Morton's fork, where you have two choices that are equally unpleasant. Morton was apparently a late 15th century Archbishop of Canterbury, and Hobson was a 16th century livery stable owner, so both expressions have good historical provenance. Anyway, clearly I rattle, but I thought I'd relate my pride in my newfound expression. Anyway, so the English barons had a Morton's fork. Either choose John, who they mistrusted from his shenanigans against his brother, or choose a boy they knew nothing about. But Hubert Walter as Archbishop of Canterbury, William the Marshal, and Geoffrey Fitzpeter, the Justiciar, all argued his case. So at Northampton the barons were gathered and persuaded to swear an oath of fealty. John was duly crowned at Westminster on the 27th of May, while Mercadier, now fighting for the younger brother, was plundering his way round Maine. Philip hadn't been idle either. As soon as he heard about the death of Richard, he attacked into Normandy and took the country around the town of Evreux. But again, John acted effectively and decisively. He met Philip on the northern frontier and demanded to know why he was being attacked. Philip gave the excuse that John hadn't asked for his overlord's permission to take possession of Normandy and demanded Anjou, Maine and Touraine for Arthur and a slice of the Norman marches for himself. For once, John stood his ground and refused and showed a bit of backbone, but also agreed a short truce. And John then used his truce really well. He received 15 counts at Rouen in one day, getting their promises that they would fight with him against Philip. They included the crucial counts of Flanders and Boulogne that protected his northern boundaries. And Otto IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, also sent an envoy to renew their alliance, and this threatened Philip from the rear. Things kicked off again in September, with an attack from Philip into Normandy. And again, John showed his mastery of the strategic situation. He completely ignored the thrust, and instead he marched south. William de Roche was the leading baron of Anjou, and Arthur's commander. And at this crucial moment, he chose to swap sides and join John. Philip had followed John south, and he'd managed to annoy William de Roche in the process by destroying one of his castles. But you have to think also that William must have figured that the wind was blowing in John's direction. So on the 22nd of September, Constance and Arthur of Brittany made their peace with John, and Philip and John agreed a truce. Which looks pretty good for John, and let's admit it, a difficult situation was handled rather well. It will result in a treaty of Ligule the following year, which gives a few more ominous signs for the future, but we'll leave that for next week. Which means that it only remains for me to congratulate Yano as the winner of the Spot the Podcaster Challenge on the website and Facebook. And to thank all of you for listening. Before I go, I'm slowly approaching another personal milestone of having 50 comments on iTunes in the UK, though I'm a little bit further off in the US. But any of you who feels moved to going onto iTunes and adding a comment or a rating, well, that would be grand. So again, thanks for listening everyone, good luck and have a really great week. 